everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange we like to start by asking what are you thinking? And this week we're going to be chatting to the amazing Emily of the Empowering RVN about lots of things uh, from finding your voice to being less like Karen. And that <laughs> leads me swiftly on to introducing myself. Uh, my name is Scott. I am a specialist in small animal internal medicine, one of the founders of VTX. And as always, I'm joined by my friend, <laughs> unfortunately, Karen. <laughs> Karen, how are you? You mean unfortunately named? Unfortunately named, Karen. But we'll not, we'll not, <laughs> we'll not give away too much at this stage. We'll speak a bit more about that later. <sighs> On our clinical segment this week, we're amazingly privileged to be joined again by the lovely Gareth Arthurs, who's going to be finishing up our clinical chat about cruciate disease in the dog. Emily, thanks so much for joining us. I have to, full, full disclosure, this is take two. <laughs> and that probably, <laughs> so I'm sorry, I, I'm really, we're very grateful for you recording again with us. Um, so I, there's lots I want to talk about, um, but let's start with the sensible thing, which is for you to do a wee introduction of yourself, if that's okay. Um, and just, yeah, just tell the listeners a little bit about who uh, you are. Yeah, so don't worry about it being second time. I actually enjoy talking to you guys, and it's the most social interaction I've had in months. So it's all good. <laughs> um, That's cool. nice. Hi, guys. Um, my name is Emily. I am a registered veterinarian, and you may know me online as the Empowering RVN. Um, I am on Instagram and Facebook, and I also have my website, which I will shamelessly plug. Um, I have uh, been um, a veterinarian for nearly eight years now um I've worked in small animal practice predominantly um in both first opinion and referral um referral was relatively recently um when I really I really loved it in referral referral I think is my home bird spot to be honest um but yeah I started um my journey with Empowering RVN about well, it'd been nearly three years ago now. Um, I was really struggling with my identity as a nurse, um, who I was, what I wanted to do, um, looking, comparing myself to all these amazing other nurses around me and thinking, God, I'm never going to be that good. Um, and I thought, well, surely if I feel like this, there's got to be some other people that feel like this as well. And after having conversations with many different nurses, we all seem to be thinking the same thing, but not really wanting to say it out loud. So me being the outspoken Northern person that I am, decided I will speak about it. Um, and I just started documenting things the way that I felt, if there was anything that I struggled with. Um, and this kind of morphed into me sort of giving people, I want to say advice, um, but lessons that I'd learned along the way or things that I'd thought of along the way that maybe somebody might have heard of or they might not have the confidence to share because they feel like they're a fraud or they might feel like they're not good enough. Um, if I look back at myself from when I was a nurse, when I first started nursing, completely different person now, complete 180. But it's been a journey and a hard journey at that. Um, but one that I'm definitely grateful for. And I'm grateful that I've had the opportunity to be able to speak um, on such a public platform um, on social media to help people find their voice as well. So that that's um, interesting what you're saying, and I think one of the things that I feel from what from you and some of the messages you put out there, you know, you don't 
always need to to know the answers always to all of the problems. But what I think you do really well is offer just an honest kind of listening pair of ears. You know, you're always, I, I feel your message is always, you know, drop me a message. I'm happy to chat. Tell me about it and we can talk about it. And again, I may not have all the answers, but I certainly will listen to what you have to say, you know. And actually, this really comes down to the the way that we connected because I had said on a previous podcast, and I've said this more than once, one of my uh, sort of uh, ongoing uh, issues with the way that we tackle mental health in the veterinary profession is the fact that we say that we're doing something about it. And a lot of the big employers will put measures in place to look like they are addressing the problem. But often I don't feel that it genuinely is addressing the problem. And I certainly have experienced that where, you know, we will tick boxes, we will put posters on the wall, we will give you X, Y, and Z online resource or telephone number, et cetera, et cetera. But they won't actually come and say to you, but are you okay? How about asking if I'm okay rather than just presenting me with a poster on the back of a toilet door? And I I genuinely think that's the part that we're missing. And I think what you have done really nicely is said, well, actually, you know, uh, tell me how you're feeling and I will talk to you about it. But I do feel that there is a big disconnect between saying we're doing something about it and actually doing something that is valuable. Would you agree? Yes. So... I definitely what you've just said I've experienced before in previous practices and I think as much as it we're sort of going in the right direction in the sense of people are actually recognizing now that this is something that needs to be addressed granted it's not the it's not it's not always the best way to go about it but at least it's a start. We've all got to start somewhere. And I think the more the conversation becomes a topic and we start, you know, being more open about it, the more that wheel is going to start to turn and the more change is going to turn up. Um, I remember when I was, like I say, when I was a student and I used to feel so I wasn't inadequate for a word because, you know, I'd be looking at all these nests around me doing all these amazing things and it'd be like, well, I'd, I'm not. I'm never going to be that good, you know. Or you know, you you get so so much anxiety, um, and thinking, God, am I doing the right thing? I went to university, so I did did the honours degree. So it was into like my second year, and I was having a really rough time in practice um, with um, toxic culture and everything else that goes with that, unfortunately. And it did make me question everything. I was like, Do I carry on with this degree? Do I even attempt to keep going? Because clearly I'm not good at it. You know, clearly I can't do a good job because, you know, I'm getting reprimanded left, right and centre. And looking back at it, some of it might not necessarily have been me. Um, But yeah, I definitely think that the conversation of mental health is going further. But I also agree strongly with you in the sense that sticking a poster up on a wall with a number on it is not enough it it's not a tick box exercise this is people's lives at the end of the day you know you hear of so many people I'm 
you hear of it more so in America than you do here in England, I think. But so many people who are losing their battle with mental health who feel like they can't, that whether it's that they feel like they can't talk or it's because they don't want to worry people, like whatever it is, you know, we are still losing people at a dramatic rate. So clearly this strategy of trying to, you know, say, you know, with wellbeing awards and stuff like that, maybe it's not about an achievement of a certificate or an award. Maybe it's the fact that, you know, we need to look close, more closely at how our staff are doing. And instead of spending time maybe on ticking boxes, actually on our employees and actually feeling like when they want, if they need to talk to somebody, they are going to be heard. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing. I think that that you you talk about that kind of toxic culture, and I think a lot of the problems that we have are kind of really deeply ingrained in the profession. And it's going to take a lot to kind of change some of some of that. I was listening to another uh, podcast actually um, from an American vet, um, and she was talk. They were they were talking about you know about this uh, subject, and actually, it's really easy to. And blame so many different sort of factors um but I think the point they were making is it's so multifactorial um factorial, factorial there's so many different things that play into it so this is not a problem that can be solved by one intervention this is a like a real shift in culture actually that has to be um that has to be addressed one of the interesting things they were saying they were talking actually Karen they were talking about you know this um you know this um thing now on the internet where all these I, I'm, not, I'm not being sexist but all these mad women that go off and rants and and they're all called Karen <laughs> yes do you know the thing what you know the cat the Karen thing right I have heard of that yeah of course I have. Are you... Yeah, so everyone knows about the Karen. Right, am I being, I thought I was, that was really sexist. It's not. So anyway, mad American women called Karen. <laughs> so It's Karenist. Anyway, what they were saying, because they were saying about like angry clients and they were calling her Karen. Oh God. And um, because it's a Karen thing. And what they were saying was um, really interesting. What they were saying was the way that the, the Karen <laughs> client acts towards us as professionals is a hundred percent not to do with us, but it's to do with them and what's going on in their life. And if they're being a Karen to you, they're probably a Karen to every other person that they interact with, their dentist, their doctor, the guy at the post office, whatever, whatever. Um, and I think it made me just think about trying to just changing that mindset about that sort of thing. So when you're having a negative interaction, whether it be with a client or another member of staff, I think even simple things like changing the way you're thinking about how they are reacting towards you. Now, I'm not making excuses for bad behavior. So if people, people don't, there's no excuse for being nasty to people. I'm not saying that, but I think changing even the way you're thinking about, hold on, this is probably not anything to do with me. This has actually probably got a lot to do with them, their personality, but also maybe what they're going through. And actually, I felt that helped me a lot, you know, and and, and I know that's not a solving the problem, but it definitely, that kind of sh- shift in mindset potentially d- is, is helpful because actually when I have it, negative interactions with clients or people around me in, wor- in the workplace, 
I take that extremely personally and I do feel that it's all about me and I must be doing something wrong. I must be the problem. But actually, I'm not the problem. You, Emily, are not the problem. It's the people around you that are potentially the issue. Do you know what I mean? I really thought you would have said it's Karen that's the problem. <laughs> and I was like, no, oh, Karen's the problem. <laughs> the thing is, the... <laughs> Cat, the ironic thing about the the ironic <laughs> thing about our Karen is that she's the least Karen. Karen, like she is not like that. <laughs> Karen is nothing like Karen. <laughs> I do wish it was another name. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, the one thing, one lesson that I I don't want well, to say a lesson. Something that I learned um, from it was actually from a TV program many years ago, actually, and it was um, a scene where a granddad was talking to his grandson. And, you know, saying, you know, why are people, um, I think he's having trouble at, at school or whatever. And he said, there's one thing you've got to remember. He said, when people are pointing at you, there's three fingers pointing back at them. God, that's... So somebody that's that's projecting something on you, what are they projecting yeah. on themselves? Gosh, that's re- Well, there you go. And that's exactly the point, actually. That is exactly the point. And I think... Again, it's it's a balance for me because I don't want to condone, particularly in the workplace, and we've spoken on this before, I definitely don't want to condone bad behaviour by veterinary professionals. I don't think it's acceptable to, you know, you oh, know but definitely not, particularly no. actually from a client point of view, I do think there's some value in just thinking about, and we, we spoke about this just recently with Neil when he was on, you just have no idea what other people are going through as well. And, and, and and just always keeping that in your mind and and having that compassion, I think is is helpful. It doesn't mean that it necessarily makes your day any easier. And I think that, but but certainly for me, when I spent a lot of time blaming myself for a lot of things, it, it was just these little things are potentially um, are potentially helpful. So you have chosen this um, this wonderful name this empowering rvn and and i think it you know it says hopefully what it does on the tin it's very powerful i think as a as a as a name that you that you've chosen what would you say is the the sort of key objective of what you are trying to do within the profession um no now you put me on the spot um oh if you don't know it's fine i mean we're just no no we're all Um, it (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what um, i'm doing (laughs) For me, my main thing is, it sounds very, well, I say it sounds very outlandish. It does, but it doesn't in one way. The way that I, my experience that I had as a, as a student, I don't want another student to have that experience. I don't want, I wanted, if I had somebody like me out there when I was a student, my journey would have been a hell of a lot easier. And there would have been so many things that I would have learned and that I would have, been able to process a lot better than having to do it the long-winded way and having to figure it out for myself and I'm not saying that I want to spoon feed people by any means but having somebody there to be able to speak to and say you know I'm really struggling what am I doing wrong for somebody to turn around to you who doesn't may not even know you as a person and go it's not you that is a powerful thing um and I think like I was saying to you um, earlier, just before we started recording, Scott, we was on about. I've currently taken a break from social media, 
Um, not for any particular reason apart, well, I say particular reason, um, because I was running on empty and I need to practice what I preach. So if I'm telling my audience not to run on empty and not to blend the nurse version of you and who you are as a person, I needed to take that step back and reevaluate what was going on because I found that through um you know through the pandemic not been able to go anywhere not that I'm a particularly social person anyway but I found that that it I developed an unhealthy relationship with social media in the sense of even if it wasn't that I was you know posting all the time I was stressing about it or I was thinking this is not good enough or I was putting unrealistic expectations on myself to do certain things that I'm telling my audience not to do but yet I'm doing it to myself so I it's being able to tell people it's okay to step away and separate it's okay to take a break from one thing or another it's all right that you know you know your professional self and your personal self are two different people you could be two completely different people you could be you know this confident out you know lovely um, I can't think of any more words um this confident professional I've lost words today um it could be this yeah. confident confident and lovely are good words really really striving for better professional but you could get home and be the meekest person that won't say boo to a goose mm. but there's nothing wrong with that because the two different identities mm-hmm. like, exist for a reason who you are as a person doesn't define who you are as a professional and vice versa. Yeah, but I think th- but this, that's probably the problem because I think, again, um, one of the issues is that it it, it does, it, that happens a lot because actually, and I think this comes from the fact that a lot of us vets and nurses have wanted to be vets and nurses since before you can remember, you know, since you were five, you know, and, and so actually what ends up happening is it becomes too much all of who you are because you um you because it's just been part of your life for such a long time even before you did the qualification and I think that's that is an issue and then you know again and I was listening to another podcast kind of speaking on this same thing and then suddenly you're asked in a interview for a job so tell me about tell me about you outside of work, and you're like, um, well, and I but so I I had an interview recently. Oh, I won't say too much. <laughs> That's not public knowledge. <laughs> anyway, I had an interview recently where um, I was asked, "What what were your what are your hobbies?" And I was like, um, "I record a podcast." And they were like, oh, oh, that's really interesting. What what do you record it on? I was like, I mean, veterinary medicine. <laughs> so like, what? So it's it, it's a podcast. And for me, that was the first thing that came into my head because I love doing this. And it, to me, this is a hobby. But it's still all about veterinary medicine. <laughs> so I think, <laughs> and then there's nothing else. And I'm like, oh no. God. You know, and that, and I think a lot of us can relate to that. It is just who we are. And that's not healthy, right? no definitely not and I think I'm just as guilty like 
not going to lie, the only thing, the only hobby that I have is walking the dog. And there's only so many times he can be walked before you pick up his lead and he walks in the opposite direction. Like, I've had too many today. Can you please? Yeah. Even your dog's like, no, too much. Yeah, this is too much. <laughs> I nearly said stop it, Karen, then. I really did. I can't <laughs> help it. Just... Oh, Karen. Oh, I'm sorry. This is hard for me. Oh. This is hard for you. I know the world is against you and it's just because of that name. I know. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. It's an automatic thing. I know, <laughs> it just I know. Comes out. Um, I can't help it. Uh, all right. So obviously, so I think re- I'm really pleased that you're taking the time that you need. And I think that's really important because we, you know, we need you in a good place to put the kind of positivity that you are putting out into the world. Um. So what would you say then at this stage, what we've touched on coronavirus a little bit and clearly that's been um, a problem with the profession and, and, and worsening, I think, a lot of mental health. It's definitely magnified a lot of problems that I don't think we realise. I think they were all things that we managed to sweep under the carpet for a long time and then now everything's been exposed and we're kind of like, I don't really know what to do about this now because we've swept it under carpet for so long. It's like, well, we've got this pile of trash now that we need to sort out and how are we going to do that then? So, yeah, I definitely agree with that. And what do you think is, what what do you think part of that solution is then? How do we move forward from that? It's a bit of a difficult one really, isn't it? Because it's like, how do you unpick so many years of bad, I'm not going to say bad practice because that's not the word, but bad culture shall we say I think conversations need to be had I think stigma whether people think there is or there isn't people can say that there isn't but there will always be a stigma around mental health I think being open and honest about it and I think coming from a place of compassion empathy and education I think are the three main things you know it's not about shaming people and saying you've been doing this wrong for all these years it's nothing to do with that. It's more to do with, you know, that people need to feel like if they're going to speak, that they're not going to be either A, reprimanded for it, or B, you know, vilified for it. Because let's be honest, they're the two main things for me that I would fear having that conversation is being judged or even thinking, you know, how are people going to respond to me? They're going to tread on eggshells next time they speak to me because, because they think I'm not okay. Like, I'm quite happily tell you if I'm not okay. But, and I know obviously there's some people out there that won't, but then equally there's some people that stay silent for a long, long time and suffer for a long, long time because they're that scared of the fear of judgment that it just becomes too much. And that's what we need. I think that's one of the main things that we need to start doing is talking. But there's also, I think, st- still too much of a badge of honour with some of the behaviours that, that are ingrained within the profession. I think particularly, I've worked for the last, I've worked 18 hours straight and I've not had a lunch break and I've not done this. And it's not, uh, we're not saying, you know, we're not saying I've worked for 18 hours straight, I've not had a lunch break, I've not sat down, this is unacceptable, this can never happen again. It's almost like, look what I've done. I have worked the last 18 hours straight and I've not taken a lunch break and I'm back in tomorrow morning and I'm back in really early and look at me isn't that doesn't that mean that I'm doing really well and actually that is ridiculous you know the fact that we just 
And I used to, you know, I used to sort of say to Andy, I'm so lucky to have this amazing job. I'm getting paid, uh, you know, uh, probably, you know, a very good amount of money. I have to accept that I'm not, that I won't get a lunch break because that's just part of the deal. It's not part of the deal. That was not in my contract. But I just, in my mind... It's not written in your contract. You will work 20-hour shifts and you will get a lunch break once a week and that's you being lucky. Um, And my favourite one of all time is, but yeah, but that's your job. Uh Uh-huh. And it's like, no, it's not my job. My job is to look after patients in the best way possible and I can't show up as my best self if you're abusing that. But that's, I'm afraid that's like every day accepted, yeah. every day, like, like honestly, and, and, and that is, that is like, if we want to talk about unpicking balls of string, let's start with lunch breaks. Let's start with, with, with leaving on time. Let's start with this not acceptable to be sitting at your desk until nine o'clock at night. It's not acceptable to be spending the whole of a Saturday then catching up on all your paperwork. Not Okay not okay none of that is okay but I think so actually maybe that is maybe that's a campaign we should just start with something simple should we collaborate on that like this just a yeah 100% like just something I mean I I don't know about you but if I don't have lunch don't come around me because (laughs) your head's gonna roll (laughs) I'm I'm surprised you've got time to eat when you're just constantly walking that poor dog of yours so (laughs) oh I know it's got no nails left. Oh, that p- it's uh, one of those dogs that I've had to stop walking because it's got no nails that left. That poor, I'm joking. very, very, ha- <laughs> very, very handsome dog. Um, okay, so I there's a number of questions that we always ask, and I, as I was driving this morning, I have added a new one. So, and I've, I've, oh. I know. So, Karen, we're mixing things up. I've just decided oh, this. Right. So, this is again inspiration from another podcast. It's it's inspiration from the Thrive DVM podcast. And actually, Lou Curtis, who is the host of that podcast, is coming on our podcast in a few weeks' time. So, that's oh. very exciting. She has a sort of number of questions she asks her guests. So, the new question that I love that she asks everyone is What are you going to be when you grow up? Oh. Um. I would like to say a well-rounded individual Uh that can stay Mm -hmm. neutral, even if it means I have to bite my tongue, because I'm very, I I find it very difficult to do that. Um, And I would like, I just want to be that person that people feel like they can turn to, because I didn't have that as a student from a professional point of view. There was nobody that I could trust. There was nobody that I could say, you know, I'm having a really crap day. And I just, not that I want to be a nosy parker and not that I want to stick my nose into people's problems, but I just want people to know that I'm there. Even if I am just someone's safety blanket that they never use. I, I, don't, I want to be that for somebody because I would rather it be that then me read a week later that someone else has lost their life just because they didn't speak to somebody. Well, I think you're selling yourself short because I think you're already doing that, pal. So that's um so you've already grown up. There you go, you've already done that. So no, I think you're you're well <laughs> Oh no, don't say that. I think you you're already achieving that in, in, in ways that you probably don't fully understand. So um 
Okay, so I I just think that's a really good question, Karen. Uh, you know, I like it. No, definitely, yeah, but I'm not thinking of that. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. Um, okay, so yeah, the other things that we always like to ask are um, who inspires you? Now, this is going to be a different answer to what I gave last time because I thought about okay. it afterwards. Okay. And my answer is all of you guys as in you guys at vtx katie laura lacy all of you guys that are what i would consider my tribe because without you guys i i would have stopped showing up a long time ago I'd, i think i would have given up because i didn't i i've always been that person talk about imposter syndrome she sat right here and i <laughs> like you say when you say that i'm doing all those things already I don't feel like I am to my standard I think I hold too high a standard for myself and so having you guys all around me cheering me on and supporting me has really given me the confidence to keep going with it and to continue to do it because I am determined that no matter what I'm always going to be there for people because that's what I wish I had I don't know, I keep banging on about it, but I cannot stress how important it is that you have somebody like that in your life or people like that in your life. Because without that, without any of you lot, I've, I don't even want to think about where I'd be. I, I think I would be in a very dark place. What What's really powerful for me is that there's just so many people, people out there that just really genuinely do just want people to be the best version of themselves are so supportive and kind and I think it just it really has restored my faith in not humanity but veterinary humanity yeah. as far as there are some really really and you've named obviously some of our favorites I forgot but... Jack and Hannah I'm really sorry Jack and Hannah it's not that I forgot oh. you <laughs> I just realized as I was reading people's names I was like I forgot Jack and Hannah oh no <laughs> Jack's gonna be like what where's my mention I love you Jack I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> okay um but that's a bit but what a great collection of people that you have just named and, and and so that is and i would totally agree with that as well that's a list of very well a list of very inspiring people if you um as far as kind of i, I think obviously one of the main things that you're doing is really um is trying to support in in in, in as many ways as you can if you were to give kind of one piece of advice um to obviously the people that you're particularly speaking to so let's say vet nurse students who are maybe not having the best time what what piece of advice would you give to them I think I was again I was quite happy with my answer last time so I'm going to stick to the same answer um, good. <laughs> and I'm gonna say that I wouldn't say anything I would take them somewhere whether it be a soundproof room or a cliff top or just somewhere and I would just sit and listen because sometimes it's not that you need people's advice it's not that you know you could tell me things and I could be like I already know all of this but maybe I just need to be heard maybe I just need somebody to listen to what I've got to say in order for me to process it so that would be what I would do in a in a non-judgmental space so you somewhere where no one else can hear 
you know, I love that. So it, it just lets go off up a mountain and you can talk as loud or as quiet as you like, but no one else is listening. But I really am. No one, there's nobody listening. There's no, there's no judgment coming from anywhere. You can scream, you can cry, you can do whatever you want. You know, just, I'm just here to listen. Mm. I think that's, um, yeah, no, I think that's a very good answer. And then I know that, you know, you're, you're kind of taking a little bit of a break and things at the moment and, 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 and I've obviously had your own struggles as we all have, you know, you're, you're very vocal about that too. And that's important. So, um, but if you were to do all of this again and be really honest, would you, would you do your veterinary nursing degree? Would you do all of that again? Or would you choose a different career path? I would do it again. 100% do it again. Because I think a lot of the lessons that I learned along the way have made me who I am today, not just as a professional, but as a person. Um, and I think that I've looking back at it, it's given me it's given me a lot of a lot of life lessons. It's and if it wasn't for them, then I wouldn't have found, like I say, all of you guys, the amazing people that I call my tribe. Like I don't, even though we've never none of us have met in person, which I find it just feels like we've known each other for years, but <laughs> I don't know what I'd do without any of them. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know what I'd do without any of you because even, even out of a professional capacity, even just as friends, I, you're all invaluable to me because, and because you are, you know, I can't, there's not a week that goes by that I don't speak to one of you guys because I actually want to because I enjoy speaking to you all. Um, and as the the industry as a whole, I have a huge passion for, whether it's clinical practice, whether it's, you know, the people that are teaching the future generations, whether it's people like Rosie Alistair that's, you know, striving forward with mental health and, and vet life, you know, all of that and Ebony with let's stay go diversify you know everybody that's in the industry I have a huge passion for and I advocate for all of this strive for innovation because without it where are we going to be in another 10 years another 20 years we can't keep going on this same path because we are going to do self-destruct at some point so we need people out there that are willing to stand and say you know we want we strive for better we need that and I am all for it. Yeah. And I think it's, it, and it's a collective, isn't it? And I think there's, we speak to so many people now that are really passionate about this. And I think it, it's, I think together there's definitely so much scope for us to, to make change. And, um, but we're all playing an important little part and we need to keep doing that. And you need to keep very much, once you're feeling in the right space again, you definitely <clears throat> continuing to do what you do because it's very, very valuable. So we'll certainly look forward to, um that return at some stage that poor dog is desperate for you to... <laughs> desperate. do you know what i'm not gonna lie if i open my office door now it's gonna be sat at the door waiting i yeah for you to <laughs> waiting to go oh yes go. he's so a warrior you're gonna smile are you gonna smile for the camera Beautiful. look at that look at the eyebrows <gasps> Oh, let's get a wee foot. Let's get a wee selfie. Oh, okay? what are you doing? I love that. Oh, look at him. He's like, oh, he's so gorgeous, isn't he? He's become a parrot, apparently. 
just moving into our clinical segment now and we're so grateful that today's podcast has been so kindly sponsored by Veterinary Instrumentation. They're a global animal health care organisation which have proudly served the industry for over three decades. Now last week, Karen, I asked you if you knew what a TPLO was. Have any up any advances on that? Any uh you did ask me that and no. Okay, still no. Well listen, for those listening who do know what a TPLO Did I know that? No, well, I, do you know edit this podcast? Well, yes. For those of you who are listening that do know what that do know what TPLO is, please head over to the Veterinary Instrumentation website. They have all the most up to date and amazing kit for dealing with all your orthopedic needs. I if I start if I start building blocks from the bottom, let's say where there's where there's most agreement, and and then of course. I'm here and I can give you my opinion. Now, you know, you know, there's the adage, right? You you ask enough people for an opinion and um, you'll get a variety of different opinions. And then it's difficult to know where to where to go. But I think I can say that the vast majority of specialists would give you the same opinion that the TPLO is the best uh, procedure for um a dog with a ruptured crucial ligament. But if we start from the from the from the bottom and do a rule out approach if you like so conservative management i think almost everybody would agree that dogs don't do great with conservative management the only reason to go for conservative management is if there is a reason not to do surgery whether that's concurrent medical disease financial constraints owner doesn't want surgery whatever of those reasons that are out there the next the next rule out is intracapsular techniques so um, the if you're a human, you would have a, a, a gastroc graft or a graft and have your sorry not if you were a human, you are a human. And if <laughs> you know what I mean, <laughs> I do that all the time. Yes, I do know what you mean. Yes, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> if if you had a cruciate rupture, yeah, then you yeah. would more than likely have an intraarticular graft placed, and you would have a period of conservative management after the graft was placed to allow the graft to revascularize. And whilst it was revascularizing, it would um, re-strengthen because it goes to a period of depletion once it's placed. So a variety of intracapsular uh, grafts have been tried in dogs and have really not met with any great success. I guess they were semi-popular up until the 80s and have sort of fallen um, out of um, um, out of fashion, you know the over the top the over the top technique is is the sort of the, the classic one, and the reason that they fall out of fashion is because the graft fails, and it probably fails because you can't tell the dog to restrict itself for a sufficient enough time that the graft will revascularize and develop enough strength to be able to take on the forces of weight bearing. So, to my knowledge, that there's no good intracapsular technique uh, and and we we are talking um evidence-based as but the quality of the evidence isn't great so you know there are some studies and we can have a discussion about how good they are or not but um and and but so what i'm talking here is broad um interpretation of the evidence and broad opinion at the same time because I, I wouldn't want, so, you know, you've got to be careful what you say, haven't you? Otherwise, someone fires off an email saying, well, you said this and this isn't true at all. Sure. So sure. No, absolutely. we can rule out 
conservative management and we can rule out intracapsular techniques. And we're climbing a ladder here of improving better outcome techniques. So the, the next one is the extracapsular technique, uh, which it, again has lots of different names. Uh, uh, um, uh, Fabello uh, tibial suture, femorotibial suture, uh, deangelis suture, where essentially you take a suture from the region of the lateral fabella and uh, onto the uh, tibia, the tibial tuberosity, and try and mimic the uh, uh, cruciate uh, ligament. Uh, the problem is that the sutures fail in due course and you can't achieve what's called isometric points. So you can't put, put the suture at exactly the origin and insertion point of the cruciate ligament and therefore it doesn't do the same job. However, having said that, extracapsular techniques were probably the most fairly popular common until the, um, I guess the beginning of this um, millennium, around the 2000s. Um, uh, I certainly did extracapsulars in my early years um, and a, a number of surveys have shown that it's still the most common surgical procedure in first opinion practice in the UK and the US. Um, and it's a relatively simple procedure to, to do. Um, the difficulty is it's not an easy procedure to do well, um, a, a bit because getting the bone tunnels in the correct position, there is no right position. Um, and certainly every dog that I've seen with an extracapsular suture, including the ones I've done myself, have had unstable stifles six to eight weeks later, if you examine them properly. That said, the dogs do reasonably well. Uh, they do have something of a slow recovery. Um, and um, But again, that's down to client expectation a little bit. Um, and uh, as I say, it's a fairly popular way of doing it. And I think in charity practice these days, PDSA, RSPCA, then that would be the procedure that would be done. And I, and I certainly wouldn't want anyone to think that I would be saying that's an inappropriate or the wrong thing to be done because there are real life constraints on what can be done. And it, it, you know, it can be a sensible thing to be done. Um, but I think what's true, and again, there is evidence, there's fairly good evidence uh, to support my next statement, although not based on large numbers, that the outcome with extracapsular is not as good as the osteotomy procedures. But when I worked, at, uh, I suppose, as recently at Cambridge University five or six years ago, that um, clinic is associated with the local RSPCA clinic, and we would occasionally do extracapsulars, um, uh, you know, because they were charity cases. To, to pause there, I suppose. So we've we've basically said ultimately that. Again, I think what's really nice about kind of the 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 thread through all of this from what you're saying is that. You can you can present us with this kind of ladder of treatment, but it very much depends on um, individual circumstance, which takes into client and financial factors that we obviously have to 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 navigate. But also, you know, um, the fact that um, sometimes the uh, this is a really good point across the board. The evidence is not always really, really easy to interpret because, first of all, we never have that much of it. <laughs> I'm not I'm yeah. saying we, we do have evidence. Yeah, it's but true. There's always there's always the uh, limitation of 
um, our numbers and yeah. our the, the types of studies clearly that we carry out. But anyway, we 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 do we we have to 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 pull upon what we what we know. So yeah, so we're at the point now where ultimately the osteotomy type, oste I'm saying that osteotomy type procedures are probably going to uh, get you the best outcome if that's appropriate for your patient taking into account these other factors. Exactly, exactly right, yes. Uh, and there is some evidence to support that, yes. So we move from the extracapsular technique to the osteotomy procedures, and we can broadly divide those down into two groups, which is the tibial tuberosity advancement and the tibial plateau level of osteotomy. And I would stratify those into, and this is where it becomes a bit controversial and not everyone would agree, but I think I have reasonably good reason to say what I'm going to say is that the tibial tuberosity advancement procedures are suboptimal compared to the tibial plateau leveling osteotomy procedures. And I say that for a number of reasons. Um, the, uh, there is evidence to show that the TPLO is the best performing procedure of the uh, cruciate procedures we have, and certainly produces not marginally better outcomes, but better outcomes in dogs um, compared to uh, TTAs, tibial tuberosity advancements. Um, and unfortunately, the there is a much higher risk of complications, it would seem, with tibial tuberosity advancements. Um, and there's a complex discussion behind that, which I'm sure we can we can touch on. Um, and then I will I would add to you uh, personal experience, which of course is the lowest quality of evidence, but you know, we've got to go with something. So I'm I my evolution in this is extracapsular sutures, TPLO, frustration with TPLO going to TTA and then going back to TPLO. And the reason I went back to TPLO was one, I saw more complications with TTA, and two, I saw a number of dogs that were just not doing as well with TTA procedures, um, and uh, there was no particularly good explanation for that. So then why, so then that's interesting. So you've, you've had a kind of personal evolution between different procedures, and I certainly, it's all these... Yeah abbreviations that i remember you know there's it it becomes but we're 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 really because mind-boggling after a while yes yeah 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 but I, I imagine how it is for me <laughs> uh, so <laughs> at least you know what you're talking about i think um what's interesting then is you've gone from tplo because of x y and z to tta yeah. and then back yeah. again so what but why then why even go to tta in the first place why did you ever go there sure uh, and place? i my story i would say is not unique a number of um specialist surgeons i guess of my sort of generation would have done the same thing so moving from tplo in the let me get my dates right here now about 10 years ago um I, I guess I just had some frustrations with the TPLO technique. Um, and uh, at that time, locking plates were not available for TPLO or only just available for TPLO. And locking plates have um, uh, revolutionized TPLO procedure quite a lot. Um, and so I thought, well, here's this new technique. It's, it's the buzz. Um, so, you know, I'll try it um, as many people have done. Um, and of course, it takes you a while to try something and to understand what it does bring you and what it doesn't bring you. 
to be able to make your own decision as to whether this is something that you think is worth sticking with um, or not. Um, at the time also, and, and, and this brings us nicely into TTA, I was, I was teaching at the Royal Vet College and I thought it's actually simpler. TPLO is a more complex procedure and it's easier to teach TTA because it's a simpler procedure. And I think this is where the strength and weakness of TTA come at the same time. It is a simpler procedure, um, but it's but it's you're much more on the edge a little bit with a with a TTA. The, the osteotomy is less controlled and less balanced post-op, which leads you into your higher post-op complication rate. Uh, that is my own personal experience. You know, I see TTA revisions and the literature also um, supports that. Um, and, and so this is why I moved on from TTA because I, I it, you know, it took me a while to understand the problems and actually the shortcut of it being a simpler procedure wasn't worth it or wasn't the reason I should choose it. Which brings us to why TTA is popular, particularly in what I would call middle level referral-ish practice in the UK but sorry you were going to say something no I was going to say well I, th I think actually I was going to say exactly well no it's similar sort of on the same point as well just overall kind of what you were maybe speaking about there I think does some of this some of this will come down to personal experience right of course. so what we're offering is what we're thinking probably we're going to be okay at doing yeah but also so I, th I think outcome wise regardless of what procedure we're talking about, lateral sutures, whatever, some of this will come down to experience. Yes. If you've done one of this procedure, or if you've done a hundred of this procedure, and that's not being like unkind to people at different levels of referral. That's actually just fact. All of us, if we do one versus a hundred, we're going to be better when we've done a hundred. Right? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. It applies to me. It applies to you. It applies to everybody. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it all, but it also, what also applies is what your background level of, orthopedics is so what you know if you're going to do it's a bit like carpentry um uh, so you know let's say you, you i try and build a table today or a chair today well i'm not going to do a very good job of it but if i've already built a hundred chairs before and now i try and build a table i'm probably going to do a better job because i've got experience of you know how to cut the wood how to join it how to do or how to bring it all together uh, and it's the same with orthopedics, you know, TPLOs and TTAs are essentially osteotomy procedures, and then you've got to put the bone back together. And so you need to be experienced in osteotomies and fracture fixation, osteotomy fixation, in order to uh, do a good job. And, and or the more experienced you are, then naturally the better the, 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 the procedure and therefore the outcome should be. Mm -hmm. So then coming back sort of, so, so really, I think, you know, the, the, the conclusion there is probably as far as um, lots of different factors, the, 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 the go-to procedure is still going to be in a majority of cases, the TPLO. So what would you say as far as then that process of, um, the dog rupturing its cruciate ligament and that journey through its uh, first, uh, you know, its first opinion practitioner potentially maybe coming on to referral with you. Are there any sort of top 
tips or or potentially things that sometimes people don't get quite as right um as far as that journey of that dog with the cruciate ligament i suppose you know it's not going to just be like seen by vet one day at your door the next day. I mean, that's no, 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 no. <laughs> Typically because they're not urgent. There's a waiting list of, I guess, two to six weeks, two to eight weeks, depending on where you're trying to refer to. Um, I guess the most common cause of frustration for clients that I would see is the fact that, and it comes back a little bit to what I was saying at the beginning, that in order to do a good TPLO, or TTA, we need to take good quality, calibrated, collimated radiographs that we can make various measurements from. And typically, the x-rays that have been taken at the first opinion practice are not of a quality they we can use. And I and this might sound a bit elitist, it's really not meant to, it's meant to just be a, a statement of fact. So clients then get a bit upset well, we've already had one set of x-rays taken. We, we've paid for those. And, and why do we have to pay for a second set to be taken? So I, I guess it would be, if you think you've got a dog with cruciate rupture and you think you're going to refer it, you're probably as well to just leave the radiographs for the referral vet than do them yourselves, unless you know exactly what that the surgeon is looking for in the uh, in the radiographs for planning the procedure. Um, of course, if you need to take the radiographs to make the diagnosis and or eliminate another diagnosis, then that's fine. But as we said at the beginning, um, the diagnosis really made by palpation of the stifle and uh, showing thrust and draw. Uh, and of course, yes, that does come down to experience. So I'm, you know, I fully appreciate that probably, you know, I've been doing it for 20 years, so I can probably feel a dog stifled pretty quickly and say, yes, this is a cruciate rupture. Whereas if you're a new graduate, you're going to struggle much more with that, or you're going to need to sedate the dog in order to confirm that instability. You know, so I think what's nice about what you're saying actually is that it's not one of those things where we're saying those x-rays were rubbish. We're going to take them again. What you're saying is actually, no, we're taking these x-rays for in a very specific way exactly. to make very specific yeah. measurements that are not necessarily to do with a diagnosis, right? Yeah. So it's a yeah. diff you're trying to achieve a slightly different thing. Cause I think because I think that's one of the things that often we overall in referral practice will get criticized. Why are you repeating all those things that we did already? And we don't and, and I don't it's not for the sake of it. Sometimes it's because time has passed, sometimes it's because we're filling in blanks. Some you know it's not always just well it's never really because we just because <laughs> well it's never for this it's never for the sake of it is it yeah yeah yeah, you know, yeah and occasionally we will get excellent radiographs and we won't repeat them there's no need we ne we would never do something for the sake of it that there's hopefully medicine surgery doesn't matter you do you do something you do a diagnostic test because you're going to get something out of it that you can't have without doing that diagnostic test and something that's important in the management of that patient so then what would you, as far as kind of sort of um, this, you know, as far as kind of take home messages regarding um, that initial uh, diagnosis and, and, and management of cruciate disease, what would, what would you say your kind of headlines are as far as top tips, advice that you would give to uh, people listening? Um, oh, top tips. I don't, um, one thing that I haven't said yet, and I, this may be a bit, 
controversial, I don't know, but I get the impression, and it'll be interesting if you reflect on this in medicine or not, um, I don't know if it's changing times, I don't know if it's corporatization, but there seems to be a much stronger pull to manage patients in-house than to refer. And that can cause some problems down the line. So I think something else I would say that I haven't said already is if you're not confident dealing with this patient, it doesn't actually matter if it's crucial disease, actually, this, I think this could be any condition, but, and the owner is willing to and wants to see someone with more experience than yourself. It may be a specialist. It doesn't have to be a specialist. It may be an experienced certificate holder, or, you know, um, then you're better to refer that patient sooner rather than later. Because um, I, I think we do see some dogs that have had surgery elsewhere that really would have been better off not having that surgery elsewhere. Um, and cruciate surgery is fairly routine. There's lots of options of where to send a patient. Um, so I think, yeah, and I do, as I say, I don't know if I just see a few unlucky versions of this or whether what I said at the beginning is true, that there is a there is a, a, a pressure from the corporate or a pressure from the boss or a pressure from wherever to try and manage as many patients in-house that then means that those patients don't get dealt with the same degree of, I guess, skill and expertise that they would if they were referred. Yeah, I, I think I think it's a really interesting point. I think it's about it's such it's such a bad. I think the the landscape has changed because of the corporatization of the veterinary world. Um, and I, I'm sure. It, well, in fact, I, I'm saying I'm sure. I know it comes with different pressures because I work in that system too. So I understand. You know, I understand some of that. The differences in pressure. What I would say is, I think it's that it's that balance between, as certainly as as referral clinicians or as specialists, we're not saying, you know, we're not saying that every single thing needs referred without a second thought because you've still got to get some. You've still got to get some enjoyment out of being able to diagnostically, uh, you know, work up cases. But I think it's about I think what it's about up fundamentally, and I think this is it's the same for you and I or anyone is about just knowing what you're good at and where your limits are and understanding what it ultimately is the best thing for the patients. Um, I completely agree. Yeah. For the patients, yeah. you know what I mean? You know, and I, there are lots of things that I will pass on to colleagues, even within medicine where, cause I'm, I'm not as good at X, Y, and Z and I, but I'm better at X, Y, and Z. And sometimes I'll do that for them. And, I, you know, and I think it's the same within our orthopedic department, within the place that I work, where, you know, some people are a bit, are more experienced at some procedures versus others. And so they won't all do everything, you know, and I think it's just just that understanding and 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 also being aware that we are very lucky to work in the veterinary world that we work in in some ways now where there's so much available and actually it, it makes your job better where you can work with specialists and referral centres to actually ultimately get better outcomes for the patients at the end of the day. Um, Cause we're all, we're all part of a bigger puzzle. I think. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. In a good way. Yeah, absolutely. I think. In a good absolutely. Way. So I suppose my top tips would be to, to come back to your original question would be to say, to try and make a diagnosis confidently from a clinical exam. 
and think about the dog's signalment and history. Ask a colleague, I guess, if you you know if you're not sure. Um, and then um, the other top tip I think would be to discuss possibilities and expectations with the client at the earliest possible um, opportunity. You know, and and it is a bit of a minefield. You know, we've spoken for I don't know what it is now, forty five minutes or so, um, and with each of the topics I've said, you know, I, I could have said so much more. So, it, it, and of course it's so difficult because in a, in a first opinion practice, you've got a, a seven to a 15 minute appointment, minute appointment. So you, you've got, you're very short on the amount of time you've got to discuss and offer options. So I think as much as you can offer options and see what does the client want or what do they not want? And then you can tailor what you then advise whether it's conservative management or referral or whatever it might be, appropriately for the, for that client's um, expectations and uh, what's possible for them with regard to travel and budget and all, all the rest of it. Um, beyond that, it's very difficult to give top tips because it's you know it's such a broad uh, you know, you know um, uh, subject matter. Honestly, I think we we I see we you have done a very good job of. Um, you know we've condensed this topic into you know like you say at this period of time but actually there's a lot there um that i think is really useful and and even just to get that summary of of of, of what treatment options are available and, and and giving people a little bit of confidence in what they're recommending i think is very valuable so um thank you and i certainly learned something today that i we never use but <laughs> at least at least i am learning always so thank you very much that was honestly brilliant thank you really thank you my pleasure thank you very much for having me so massive thank you to emily and gareth for joining us in the podcast today we've had such a good time chatting to both of you honestly big thank you to all of you that are listening as always we really cannot tell you how much we appreciate the support to learn more about vtx and what we do head over to our shiny new website at www.vtx-cpd.com that's it for us this week i think so we'll look forward to seeing you next time